Let us pray. Almighty God, who alone can order the unruly wills and affection of sinful men, grant unto thy people that we might love what you command and desire what you promise, so that among the many and varied changes of the world, our hearts may surely there be fixed, where true joys are to be found in Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. In our Gospel reading today, we come to the second time that Jesus predicts his death and resurrection. The first time was at Caesarea Philippi. And at that time, the disciples finally realised that Jesus is the Messiah, he's the Christ. And from then on, everything changed. Suddenly, Jesus' teaching ministry starts winding down and he starts making preparation to go to Jerusalem where he's to suffer and die and then be raised again on the third day. That was in chapter 16 and now again in chapter 17, Jesus repeats that he's going to be killed and on the third day rise again. So why the repetition? But why is he telling them the same thing again? Well, they clearly don't get it. Though they believe that he's the Messiah, he's certainly not the Messiah that they were expecting. Sure, Jesus was going to Jerusalem, but he wasn't going to set up a kingdom. That'll come later. Sure, Jesus will be lifted up, but it won't be high upon a throne. It'll be high upon a cross. And that's why it was so hard for the, for the disciples to comprehend Messiahs don't go to Jerusalem to die. They go to defeat Israel's oppressors and reign from David's throne. And if a, if a dying Messiah is hard to imagine, then one that raises from the dead is totally unfathomable. I mean, people don't do that, do they? So when Jesus says in verse 23 that he's going to die, well, the disciples grieve. But it's like they don't even hear the last bit he said about being raised to life on the third day. They let that one go through to the keeper because it makes no sense at all. What might have made a bit more sense is the additional but ominous information that Jesus will be betrayed. He'll be delivered into the hands of men. And we know that that's exactly what Judas did. He betrayed Jesus, he handed him over into the hands of the Jewish authorities who sought to have him killed. But what I want you to know is that when Matthew uses the Greek word that means delivered, he puts it in the passive voice. It's commonly known as the divine passive. And his point in doing so is to say that the betrayal of Jesus, well, it didn't take him by surprise. Judas didn't upset Jesus' plans. In part, he fulfilled them. As Jesus told his disciples in chapter 16, he said he must go to Jerusalem to suffer and die. He must be killed on the third day and be raised to life. None of this is happening by accident. It's all part of the plan. Jesus was not a political messiah. He wasn't seeking to establish an earthly kingdom. He wasn't full of rage against the Romans and the political leaders of the day. 
he was obedient to the end, even unto death, a death on a cross. And the story about paying temple tax is just one aspect of what it means for Jesus to be obedient. Matthew is the only Gospel writer to record this story. And that's not too surprising, because Matthew's the former tax collector in the group. But this isn't the Roman tax that Matthew collected. This isn't a tax despised by the Jews. This is the temple tax. This was a matter of national pride for them. The, the temple tax was used for the upkeep of the temple. It was paid by all Jewish males, 20 years and above, and it amounted to an annual sum of two drachmas. Now that's about two days' wages. So it's a fair sum to be handing over, especially since it's only collected once a year. And the collection happened either in Jerusalem, with the money changes at the temple, at the time of the Passover, or it happened as here a month earlier, in the provincial centres throughout Palestine. So when, the, when Jesus and his disciples returned to headquarters at Capernaum, the questions asked for Peter in verse 24, doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? Now there's a few things worth pointing out here. Firstly, not every male paid the tax. Rabbis were exempt, and so too were priests in Jerusalem. And the temple tax was also a bit controversial. The Sadducees, for example, were very disapproving of the tax. The men of Qumran would only ever pay it once in their lifetime. For though it's clearly legislated in Exodus, there's no clear stipulation that it be an annual tax. So when it comes to Jesus paying the tax, there seems to be some uncertainty as to whether he's going to pay it or not. Whoever Jesus is, he's certainly not your average rabbi, orthodox in all his ways. He seems to run an independent line on most things. And it was only in chapter 11 that he denounced Capernaum as being unbelieving and more worthy of judgment than Sodom. So it seems that the tax collectors, well, they're just checking. And in checking, they don't ask Jesus directly. Instead, they ask Peter. Now, that could be because they're a little anxious about talking to Jesus. But it's more likely that Jesus and the disciples would simply stay in at Peter's house, of all 12 of them. I don't know what Mrs. Peter thought of that. I suspect his mother-in-law was quite pleased about it. Whatever the case, the answer was a clear yes that Jesus does pay the temple tax. And, and before Peter can talk to Jesus about that, Jesus asks him a question in verse 25. What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth collect duty and taxes? From their own sons or from others? And, and Peter gives the obvious and correct answer. He says, well, from others. So Jesus draws the necessary conclusion. Therefore, the sons are exempt. A king doesn't tax his own family. Now the point that Jesus is making, I think it's pretty clear. He's implying that as the son of God, he shouldn't have to pay tax for the upkeep of his father's house. 
And that's true not only for Jesus, but also for Peter and the other disciples who will eventually come through as the adopted sons of God. It was only a little earlier in chapter 12 that Jesus, when speaking to the Pharisees, he referred to himself as one greater than the temple. What an extraordinary thing to say. So it's not surprising that the early Christians stopped offering sacrifices at the temple. For Jesus is the temple of God. In him all the fullness of God dwells. He's where we meet with God. He's where perfect sacrifice is made for our sins. He's where we find grace and mercy and forgiveness. And he's where we find our great high priest. But at this point in time, Jesus did pay the temple tax. And that's not because he's afraid of upsetting the religious authorities. That's never been true of Jesus. He managed to do that regularly, especially when their rules and their traditions became smokescreens for their self-righteousness and their hypocrisy. Jesus submitted to this regulation because now, that now was not the time to rightfully claim all power and kingdom authority. Authority that belongs to the Son of God, the Son of David, the rightful heir to his eternal throne. Now was the time to be subject to the law, to fulfil the law, to, to fulfil all righteousness. Now was the time to do the Father's will and so redeem us from the curse of the law by being made a curse for us on the cross. What Jesus... Excuse <coughs> what Jesus... <coughs> what Jesus didn't want to do was that he didn't want to scandalise them. He, he wanted to give them no reason to think that he broke the law, because he never did. He broke many human traditions, but he never broke God's law. He perfectly kept God's law, and he perfectly fulfilled it. And that's the point of this story that Matthew tells. <coughs> it's not really about the miracle of the fish, and nor is it even about the temple tax. That Jesus paid the tax, as he says in verse 27, so that no offence may be given. This is about Jesus obeying the law, even though he was free of the law. And Jesus' obedience to the law was on the path that led him to the cross and then to glory. For the path to glory is a path of obedience and suffering. Jesus kept the moral law because that's consistent with his own nature as being one with the Father. He kept the ceremonial law because that's consistent with him being the true, faithful and obedient son. On both counts, Jesus was faithful where we're unfaithful. He was obedient where we're disobedient. He was victorious where we've failed. And we now, as the adopted sons and daughters of God, we follow the same path to glory that Jesus took. We obey God's moral law because that's consistent with who we are in Christ Jesus. But we're a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. And we obey everything that Jesus has commanded us 
not to fulfil all righteousness, because only Jesus can do that, but because love is the only proper response to him who has first loved us. Though Jesus was rightly the Son of God, worthy of all glory and honour, he came as a servant. He suffered and died as a servant. So too, though we're adopted children of God through faith, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, we are also servants, humbling ourselves not only before God, but before one another and the world. Because God's commitment to us is absolute, and our unity with Christ Jesus is absolute, we're confident that if we died with him, we'll also live with him. We're confident that if we endure, we'll also reign with him. And our confidence is so because it's granted to us on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but to suffer for him. And the simplest and perhaps easiest way to do that is by serving one another, by being devoted to one another in brotherly love, by honouring one another above ourselves. And at the very least, this means curtailing our own liberties and choices as Jesus did, so that no offence might be given. Now in our own culture, alcohol use would be a good example of that. There is absolutely no reason why alcohol must be on a Christian's list of banned and sinful substances. But there's every reason to consider drunkenness and excess to be sinful. What requires wisdom is to decide when and where and how much alcohol, if any, you choose to consume. Given the problems that it causes in our culture, you may well decide not to drink at all. And that's a good decision. If you're fully convinced in your own mind. Alternatively, you might recognise alcohol as a gift from God that should be received with thanksgiving and enjoyed as one of the many fruits of creation. Again, a good decision. If you're fully convinced in your own mind. There are, however, two things that we can't do. We can't judge a brother or sister who chooses differently to us. For he who drinks rightly does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. And he who abstains does likewise. And the second thing that we can't do is we can't live to please ourselves. If we take personal liberties because we're strong in our faith, without regard for those who are less confident in their faith, then we've failed to serve our brother for his good. We've failed to build him up. We've failed the test of love that does no wrong to a neighbour, for love is the fulfilment of the law. And if that seems a difficult and sometimes complex path to travel, then I want to assure you that that's the easy part. The narrower and more difficult path of obedience is a road to suffering and even persecution. For Jesus' promise in this life is mostly quite positive. He says that all of you who have left home or brothers or sisters 
or mother or father or children or fields for him in the gospel will not fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. And when you read that, you think, well, that's fantastic. That's great. And then he goes on and he says, and with that persecution, and in the age to come, eternal life. You think, oh. Our assurance is not only the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, we're also assured that everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And until recently, that has not been so obvious. For though Jesus warned that if they hated him, they'll hate us, persecution has not been the common experience of Christians in the West. And if you're not so sure that persecution could become a reality in our own culture then I would invite you to make public statements about traditional marriage and morality. Make exclusive claims for Jesus and the Gospel. Indeed, take any stand that's characteristically Christian and yet contrary to the mores of the sexual revolution and the cultural elites, and you'll find yourself vilified as bigoted and pilloried mercilessly with public abuse. What was once thought to be evil is now considered as good. What was recently thought to be good is now derided as evil. The triune and unholy mantra of diversity, inclusion and tolerance has only one exception, and that's orthodox and evangelical Christianity. If you're a generation older than I, then most of your peers will at least have a worldview similar to your own. If you're about my age and therefore still quite young, <laughs> then most of your peers will think that you're stupid, though probably harmless. If you're much younger than I, then your Christian worldview will have few points of overlap with your peers you may well be considered as not simply harmless or stupid, but as positively dangerous and evil. We're now entering a period of church history in the West where persecution is a return to normal. The church has been there before, and it's where the church started in the first century. But now Christendom has largely evaporated. But Sodom and Gomorrah have are rising triumphant from the ashes. And that's not a reason for us to be alarmed. For the church belongs to Jesus, and his promise is that the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Nevertheless, how we respond is important. We should be responding with hope rather than surprise. And we should be responding with grace and godliness rather than fear and anger. For the grace of God teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age. So don't be surprised, brothers and sisters, if the world hates us. For as Peter reminds us, even if we do suffer for what's right, we're blessed. We don't fear threats, and we're not frightened because we revere Christ as Lord. 
We're always prepared to give an answer to everyone concerning the hope that we have. But we do it with gentleness and respect and we keep a clear conscience because it's better if it's God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. So like Christ Jesus, we seek not to give offence and we rejoice and are glad if we're counted worthy to suffer disgrace for the name. And day after day, we never stop teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. Let us pray. We thank you, our Father, that our Lord Jesus Christ determined to suffer and die so that our sins might be forgiven. We thank you that you determined to raise him from death to life so that we too with him might be transformed from one glory to another. Help us, Lord, to follow Jesus in serving, building one, one another up in faith and hope and love, honouring one another above ourselves. Help us especially, Lord, to follow Jesus in suffering and even in death, denying ourselves and taking up our cross. May we never be ashamed of you, and may we count it all honour to suffer disgrace and shame for the sake of the gospel and the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.